Okay, welcome everybody to uh, Football Coaches Australia, Football Federation Australia and the State Member Federation Professional Development Workshop this evening. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome tonight's presenter, uh, Andrew Clark. Andrew was an inaugural Football Coaches Australia Executive Member uh, and probably one of the most consummate professionals in the game. Um, he has, was a professional player, Gosford born, and uh, has carved out his career, whether he likes it or not, as Graham Arnold's right-hand man at the Central Coast, Japan, Sydney, and now around the globe with the Socceroos. Andrew had a professional playing stint uh, within the National Soccer League, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and with Central Coast Mariners Football Club, where he was also the strength and conditioning coach in addition to his playing. He spent nine years at the Mariners, had the opportunity to play and take on the business of sports science and strength and conditions whilst playing. During this period, Andrew also completed a Masters in Sports Science. He's heavily involved with the Socceroos and all of the national teams from the under-16s trying to qualify for the next under-17s, the under-17s aspiring to go to World Cups, to the Socceroos and the Matildas. So welcome everybody, uh, but pleased to welcome Andrew to present his workshop. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Glenn. And uh, before I get started, I think that uh, we really need to recognise the work that the tireless work that Glenn does for the FCA. Uh, like he mentioned, um, I was there right at the start with the Coaches Association and hope to have a long involvement with the Coaches Association in the future where our strength of position in the game is where it really should be. Um, and that is, you know, an influencer on key decisions, um, you know, that relate to all different parts of the game that we are so influential um, in being a part of. Um, so I can't thank Glenn enough for his work so far um, and I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff to come in the future. What I'd like to do tonight is uh, share a presentation that is hopefully um, quite simple and I think that is the way that I like to see sports science in football. So when Glenn asked me to do this talk, um, I'm always a little bit apprehensive um, you know, to talk about sports science in football, I think that um, it's had a it's had an interesting interesting history since um, my involvement in the game as a sports scientist, where it was a sexy new tool to use in football when I first started, um, through to being um, pretty unpopular in the game of football. To today, where we're in a where we're in a more balanced position, where we look at sports science and the benefits that it can have to football. And I think that, um, you know, the benefit to uh, football in utilising sports science, you know, has to lay in making us better coaches and has to uh, lay in producing better players. Um, so just to follow on from what Glenn said about my introduction to um, sports science, I was given the opportunity to start as a sports scientist whilst I was playing with uh, the Central Coast Mariners with Laurie McKinna. Um, and it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up at the time. And it was a period where I was very fortunate that a, a lot of young sports scientists in the game today don't have the privilege of being able to make mistakes, learn on the run um, in a professional environment with a fantastic group of players, um, to develop myself and continue to study to the point where I feel like today I haven't have a balanced understanding of where sports science fits into the game. Sports science in football needs to use evidence-based information to support and challenge your coaching philosophies. It needs to evoke conversations about your intuition on things 
to back it up with objective evidence to make sure that uh, we have a clear picture that uh, is balanced in most of, in both subjective and objective information to make sure we're coming up with the right solutions for the game. So the aim of sports science, more specifically, aims to improve individual player and team performance by devising strategies that are derived from a scientific means. It aims to collaborate with all different areas of sports science and sports medicine. So when we're talking about a sports science and sports medicine team, we're talking about doctors, dietitians, podiatrists, psychologists, um, right through to uh, different forms of coaching at the moment, uh, physiotherapists, and we all need to work together uh, to make sure that we get the, the result that is desired, and that is an increase, an improvement in the performance of the player and an improvement in the performance of the team. So ultimately, to, to, to summarise, what we want to do is gather good information to pass on to players and coaches to create success, and success can meet many different things in different environments. Success in one environment can mean the development of a player. Success in another environment can be winning trophies and success in another environment might be avoiding relegation. So that's a brief introduction, introduction to sports science. It's uh, what I do with the national teams. Um, I want to promote some discussion about sports science. I certainly feel far more comfortable in a discussion-based environment. So my current role at the moment uh, is with the national teams. Uh, and like Glenn said, my focus is primarily on the Socceroos and the Oliroos, but certainly the structures that we put in place, uh, we aim to have a standardised approach across all national teams. Um, and we aim to offer a level of support for all national team players of all age groups um, to make sure that there's a, an understanding from clubs that we're dealing with and with players have an understanding of what the environment is going to look like uh, when they enter our environment and clubs have an expectation of what sort of information that they're going to, uh, what sort of communication that they're going to receive and what sort of information they're going to receive from us in return when a player comes to, the pl uh, to play for the national teams. When I first started the job, I came in and uh, I was probably a little bit naive to exactly what the role of a high-performance manager or a sports scientist with the national teams was. I think that when you're in a club environment, uh, you have a very you have very close control over your players. Um, you can design and implement programs. Um, you can see those programs develop, and you can see players develop, and the success of your team model um, develop to the point where you can achieve the outcomes that you set out to achieve. And I worked out very quickly with national teams that we have very limited control over our players and our player programs. Um, we we understand that. We have a lot of situations that we're faced with that are, that are very difficult in, in a traditional club sense of pulling a team together and getting them to play the style of football that you want to play, considering that we have lots of different uh, obstacles in our way, such as gathering players from all over the world, so the travel demands. Uh, we have to use sports science to deal with fatigue, fatigue-related travel. We play in extreme environments. Um, you know, we have players that are being asked to play two days after they've travelled at a time that is usually 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. So we have all of these small problems that we need to deal with. The other major problem that we have, which I find is um, something that is very important at a club level, is understanding what is normal for a player. 
So in understanding what is normal for a player, we build up a training load over a period of time. When we understand what's normal for that player, when those uh, when certain parts of their training load become extreme, we recognise that, we allow extra recovery and we make sure we keep those players fit and healthy. So a big challenge for us is understanding what's normal for a player when they're outside the national team environment. And this is just an example of a World Cup window um, for us. And, and when we're looking at a World Cup window, uh, we're usually an 11-day window where players are travelling from all over the globe um, to play two matches within a window, then return to their clubs to play on the next weekend. So this is something that we need to consider all of these things to be able to create a performance out of a player. And sports science plays a role in many of these things. So in this particular case, you can see that we had players departing from 17 cities, seven different time zones. Some of those time zones of players we had to try to manipulate prior to them arriving to make sure that they weren't playing at low, low points in their circadian rhythm when match time was. The average distance for a player to get to Canberra was 14,000 kilometres. Following the game in Canberra, we still had to fly collectively another 519,000 kilometres to get to Taiwan. Then the players had to return to their club and play on the weekend. So you start to understand uh, the complex situation that we have to deal with um, in getting a national team on the ground and getting them playing and some of the different areas that uh, sports science can have an influence on. So in this sort of environment, the areas that sports science will influence are, like I said, looking at circadian rhythm and identifying players that are going to be at low points in their rhythm to make sure that either they're not available for that particular match time or we're trying to change time zones a little bit before they come. Uh, we, we have travel schedules for players. Um, we work very hard on recovery programs when players a lot, uh, arrive. We have flexibility in our training programs when players arrive in camp. Um, and it's all very individualised. Um, so it, it's, it's complex. It's very complex. And I think um, until I've sat in this position, um, I don't appreciate, I didn't appreciate the challenges that it takes to, first of all, get players together to play a game. Secondly, get them to stay healthy. healthy and third, get them to win the game and get to the World Cup. So I'll just give you a little idea of what we do when we're out of camp. And, and basically when we're out of camp, we're trying to gather as much information as we can to supply to our coaches, to all of our staff, to make sure that they have the, the best depth of information to select the right players to play the game. So the two main pieces of information that we collect for our staff, and we report this staff every week, is obviously a simple availability report. We'll have an extended list of about 50 to 60 players of that 50 to 60 players, we'll identify whether they're fit or injured. We'll identify whether they're completing a full training load. We'll identify what sort of match minutes they're, they're experiencing at the moment. So you can see this and on a Monday, we're looking at how many minutes the player played in the last week and how many minutes the player played in the last month, just as a bit of a measure of their acute to chronic ratios. Sometimes we'll look a bit further than that. We'll look how much they've played in the last three months or six months, depending on the player if we want to get an understanding of what sort of match exposure they've had. And I think we quickly learned that, you know, the key to performance is playing matches. And it's something we're trying to deal with all over the game, locally and internationally, to make sure that our players can perform at their best, whether it's for a national team or for a club, 
by playing more minutes of football because simply in certain age groups, and this is a very difficult issue that we've had to deal with the, with the Olympic team, you know, we have players that this graph looks very ugly. Um, you know, we have players that just aren't simply playing enough minutes. The other key thing to um, gathering information outside of camp is communication. Um, we spend most of our time trying to build relationships with clubs all over the world. With that relationship and the, the permission of the player, then we can start to gather information on training load exposure, um, some more detailed training load information, perhaps some testing information, um, some GPS match data. And as I go on in this talk, you'll understand the importance of that to, to how we engage sports science in, uh, in deciding how we play the game and deciding who we pick. So communication with clubs is really important to the success of the national teams. The next thing we like to do with national teams is we feel that it's very important to build a physiological player uh, profile of a player. There, there has always been debate about whether we should be doing fitness testing on footballers. As a sports scientist, I feel like it's my place and my piece in the puzzle to provide as much depth as I can about a player to help improve their individual performance, to identify their strengths and weaknesses, and to give some sort of insight into either um, long-term benchmarking of players over generations or looking at uh, the development over, of a player over the course of their career. And the only way that we can do this is by being consistent in the tests that we, prove, that, uh, that we choose. So we need to look at the time motion characteristics of the game. We need to understand the physiological systems that are in playing the game, at playing the game, and we need to pick tests that represent those things. That's with the understanding that these tests don't represent success or failure in the game. They just represent the player's physiology and the progression of that physiology. So if we can improve the interval-based aerobic capacity of a player, there's no guarantees that it's going to improve the game but there is the opportunity for that player to be capable of playing a certain role that we require that player to play in the game because of what we understand of their physiology. Now, we know that there's a lot of complex relationships between psychology, technical, tactical, physical that make up whether the player is good enough, but it's my responsibility in this to provide a physiological profile of the player, and I think it's very important, and I think it's important for Australian football. Some of these tests have remained exactly the same and we were hell-bent on keeping exactly the same tests when we entered the national teams as well because I think the longevity of this information is what gives it power. We also uh, reintroduced, and Ronnie, you'd be happy to hear this, uh, some jump testing, basic counter-movement jump testing, standing broad jump testing that can be done in any environment. And we want to recommend this and have been recommending this test battery to the Australian landscape and we'll continue to pursue this in future. What we're then able to do, and we've seen this with a few players, is when a player moves from club to club or they move from uh, through different phases of their career, they start to build up this unbelievable, unbe unbelievable collection of long data that helps them keep their career on track. And we've had situations already where players have, play, have changed clubs and there's been a significant change in the playing, in the training uh, style from one country to another country. And we've seen the physiological profile of that player change significantly within six weeks. So we've seen jump tests just significantly drop. When we probe a bit further about what's going on, 
The style of training is completely different. So then we're able to talk to the club or supplement some of those things with the player behind the scenes to make sure that we see those things, um, you know, those tests continue to improve and be maintained throughout their career. The next thing that we like to do, and I don't need to spend too much time on this, is um, we, we like clubs to understand with the permission of the player everything that a player does in camp. We're not ashamed to pass on uh, information on our training loads, um, our training structure, the actual training sessions, if we want to put some context on these numbers, um, any of the treatment that the players had, um, any of the testing that the players had. And I think this open sharing relationship, um, first and foremost, helps maintain the health of the player. But secondly, it allows us to build really good relationships with the clubs. And all of a sudden, when we offer up this information, we start getting this information prior to players coming into camp. That allows us then to safely plan what we're going to do within the camp, within reason, um, and pass the players back to the clubs. Because we don't own these players. We're just borrowing these players to play for our national team, and we want to safely hand these players back. Uh, the next part of the reporting process um, is internal whilst we're in camp. Um, and these are some of the reports that we give. Obviously, um, you know, we plan for our training weeks and we report back daily to our coaching staff um, exactly what has happened um, objectively in the session. So objectively, we're talking about GPS analysis. We're talking about time of training session, um, heart rate and any testing that we do. And a lot of this is jar unrequired jargon to a coach. And I think it's fair enough. I think that um, the focus of, I think it, I feel like it's my responsibility to take away a lot of um, the concerns about whether a player has had enough exposure or whether their load is being managed so that the coaching staff can concentrate on the tactical outcomes that they want to achieve. I can guide and add and manipulate the training session in small parts around the outside to make sure that the players are getting enough exposure in certain areas on certain days to prepare them for the match. But I would like to think that the focus of the staff is on uh, the psychology of the players, um, on achieving tactical outcomes so that we can all go and win the game. The simplest thing that we can give to a coach, and, and like I say, said here, uh, said before, he, this information contains you know, whether the player's full training, time of the session, RPEs, total distance, high-speed running, acceleration, deceleration, you know, and they all have certain meaning to certain people in the coaching group. We can take a quick snapshot of, snapshot of the training session for the coach and they can go, okay, today was good compared to the normal values that we have. Oh, shit, we overdid it a bit on high-speed running or sprinting today, maybe because we did a crossing and finishing drill. It's okay. Or maybe next time we need to reconsider whether we do that drill in the training session. The last piece of reporting for national teams um, is around the match. And this is the integration of a lot of different things. And I think that um, the, the use of match data um, and its relationship to performance is, is not perfect um, and it needs to be developed um, in, in coordination with data analysis and with tactical analysis. Because we know, and you know intuitively, that different ways to play the game 
give us different success outcomes but have different physiological requirements. We know that if we dominate the game with possession, that usually we will run less. Not always, but usually we will run less. We know from research, both internal and external, that if we press high in a game and we're intent on pressing quickly in the front areas, we can actually save a lot of energy in the game. Um, it might feel like those front players are doing a lot more, but actually as an average across the team, we're actually doing less by reacting quickly and winning the ball back quickly. So the, the use of match information to assess performance is a dangerous thing. I think that we should be using match information to make some connections between previous success, but mainly to look at it as a part of the load of the week that we want to understand what is normal for a player in a normal week. So we need to understand what a player does in training to know how we, uh, sorry, in the game, to know how we need to plan the recovery from that game. You know, if a player's played 60 minutes, if a player's played 90 minutes against a rubbish team where we've done virtually nothing, maybe we can train harder that next week. We don't need to recover as long. If we've been in a hot environment, it's been psychologically stressful, the game, it's been physically demanding. We can see that on the time motion data. We can see it in other areas that we identify. We need to react to that and accept that the week needs to be adjusted because there needs to be more recovery. <clears throat> the last piece of national teams has been um, the development of um, standardised manuals of how we do things, um, of information around heat acclimatisation that our national team players can use um, around travel advice for our teams that are travelling around the world. And this goes on in lots and lots of different medical and sports science areas. A project that we're working on at the moment and we're working on, we were actually working on today, is making all of this information available to the Australian public. I feel that our position, um, our responsibility more than our position uh, as working for the Federation and for the national teams is to be leaders in the area of uh, providing information that the whole landscape can use. So a goal that we have, that we're going to try to achieve fairly quickly is to establish um, a main place on the FFA website that looks at health, medical and wellbeing, where we post up the information that we use with national teams so it's accessible for people around the country. What should I do with my 12-year-old kid if I'm concerned in a hot environment? What should we do for, you know, what's the latest research say on recovery protocols? What does a sports scientist do at the FFA? We want to make those things available to the Australian landscape. And so we hope to get that up soon. Any questions on national teams? Glenn. One from John Theo, uh, Andrew. Uh, just uh, when you were... Um, sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach for uh, Sydney FC. Uh, Andrew, uh, John was obviously uh, uh, watching what you do during your warm-ups and he noticed that uh, in the warm-ups you do a lot of running sprints, uh, in particularly with someone like Alex Brosk who has mm. had a history of hamstring injuries. Um, just your thinking behind that. I try to keep warm-ups fairly simple. Um, I, I don't think – I think that if, if we need the warm-up, to, um, to recreate part of the game. And I, and I understand people's thinking on doing this. Um, I think that we're, we probably haven't done enough during training in the week 
I want try players to understand a simple process of getting all their physiological systems up to the match level. So as a part of that, they need to sprint at maximum speed. So we go through a simple process of um, increasing blood flow, warming up their spine, working things towards end of, range, end of range through dynamic movements, getting them making decisions, getting them on the ball, passing to doing, you know, uh, full force kicking, um, you know, in, in movements that they would be required to do in the game. Um, and then at the end of that, putting them in a match-based situation where they're starting to make decisions in a confined space. For someone like Broski, um, you know, he, it's amazing that he actually came back. Um, he had a repeat hamstring injury um, where he required a major operation to, to get him back on the park. Um, and he had to work ridiculously hard off the park, which anyone that knows Broski's knows that that's an amazing feat in itself to get him working hard off the park, especially when he's 34 years old. Um, and the sprinting at the end of the warm-up was to make sure that he had reached the maximum length, the maximum contraction, maximum force through that muscle before he entered the field. And I think it has two parts. It's a psychological um, tick for him, um, and for me it's a physiological tick. From Ricardo, um, the question is, using physical metrics or targets, what percentage of these do you aim to hit across the various types of training sessions? i.e. tactical session, 50% of match physical output, conditioning session, 80% of match physical output, and why? Um, we, we don't have a strict protocol on exactly what percentages are going to be on certain days, but we certainly have a very good understanding when we do a drill what the effect of that drill is going to be, and I think it's a really important part of coaching and um, an important part of being a strength and conditioning coach is understanding this drill that I'm doing right now, exactly what sort of damage and exactly what sort of time frame is it going to take to recover from this drill? Um, and as long as we're placing those drills in on the right days, we will always guarantee that the player is going to be able to perform at their best. Because I think if a quick way to lose the trust of a player and to lose yourself as a coach is to get things wrong for a player and put them in a situation where their performance is impaired in a match. So I think it's a it's a progression in percentages of understanding that on match day minus four or match day minus three, once we're outside the match day plus two window, that we pretty have much free right, we, we pretty much have free reign within the norms of the player to expose them to close to 100% of their match load. Um, but as we move closer to the game, on the balance of all the things that we're trying to train, you know, we'll drop down to, you know, 30%, 20% the day before a game, and we make sure that we leave that window nice and open for their systems to recover to play the match. Thanks, Andrew. From Troy, how can this be, how can what you've uh, presented tonight, Andrew, obviously with uh, the way that you monitor your athletes, uh, how can this be implement, implemented at an MPL level with the time and monetary constraints? Uh, as an EP, I've been using GPS data for players over a week for three players, as I only have three units. Is there a framework that clubs can use to help incorporate strength and condition into their into their programs? I think he's trying to preempt my next the next part of the presentation. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, it's um. Look, I, I think what I wanted to demonstrate uh, in over the course of this presentation is that 
there are certain things that we do in an elite environment because we have access to funds, because we have access to resources, you know, both staff resources and, and facility resources. But to be a good sports scientist or to be a good strength and conditioning coach and for the coach to actually think, I need this person sitting right next to me, there's way to, ways to achieve all of these things on virtually zero budget. And I think you need to get the building blocks right of, you know, ha- and I'll go through this as we move along, of, of how we monitor the training session, how we assess the match, how we, uh, you know, measure the recovery of the player to make sure that we're following good principles of using evidence base to overload a player to make sure they're improving, but not overtaxing them so that they're going into an overload situation into a match where they're at risk of injury or poor performance. So I think that some of the, I want to, I want to build the framework of um, what it is to carry out good practice, but then I want to show that there is means that we can apply this, these principles to any environment and it doesn't matter whether they're kids or whether they're, or, or whether you're an elite player playing for the national teams. And I think just to finish, my really fortunate part in my um, journey in this game has been that I started in sports science where there was no equipment. Um, I think a couple of years down the track, we started to introduce heart rate monitors and all of the uh, training load had to be done subjectively. Um, and the response to training, some of those things had to be done without heart rate and GPS had to be done you know, subjectively, subjectively by understanding what zone a player's in when they're breathing at a certain level, by running next to someone and and understanding exactly how much you're taxing that player, by asking a player and looking at a player to see how they feel after the training session before you put them into the next session. So I think that's given me the opportunity to educate without technology but then use technology um, as it's become available and I've seen that it's going to improve my position uh, in the coaching team and in the game. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Troy. Uh, from Radham, Andrew, how do you have performance? Sorry, do you have performance charts separate for goalkeepers? Uh, I can imagine the testing battery is similar, but the performance profile is different. <laughs> Maybe I should bring John Crawley straight in on this one. I've worked with John for a long time. Um, we understand that the, re- the physiological requirements of a goalkeeper are significantly different to the rest of the players in the game. Um, and if it's not for a psychological reason, to see goalkeepers doing work that's counterproductive to them being goalkeepers, whether it's you know low-intensity aerobic-based work that's developing their slow-twitch profile or whatever, I just see that as madness, unless you can justify to me that it has a psychological uh, gain for the goalkeeper. So, yes, we treat our goalkeepers very differently. I don't profess to know in detail um, you know the exact requirements of working a training session with a goalkeeper and and I'm very hands-off with the goalkeepers with John um, because I think that the, the sort of I understand the physiological requirements being repeated power the ability to be very long in their bodies um, are very specific to that position and I support that in the gym and off the park um, but on the park, the testing protocols, um, some of them are similar, some of them are very different. The training protocols are very different with our goalkeepers. John, if you'd like to come off mute, do you want to add to that at all? 
John, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, I actually, I actually mentioned something on uh, on a social media platform today. Um, the only benefit of doing running with the team really as a goalkeeper is if you're very good at running and you can be the fittest in the team, then that's a license to bollock people when they don't do the job in the um, on the park in front of you when they need to recover or whatnot. So um, it's a respect thing. It might sound a bit ludicrous, but I always thought that worked for me. Um, no, Andrew's right. Um, goalkeepers are a different breed. Um, in terms of... Um, Look, the, the, the physical characteristics that they need, they need to be obviously very flexible, agile and very strong at the end of range. Um, and uh, these are things that uh, really worked on um, within the parameters of the training session, really. Um, sure, um, the sports science crew, Andrew, um, uh, assist with that, uh, with additional stuff in the gym but um, pretty much on the training park is where it all evolves for us. And I think some of the test battery is very specific to goalkeepers. When we're looking at, you know, measuring um, whether it's five-metre sprint time, counter-movement jump, uh, standing broad jump, they're directly applicable to a goalkeeper and they give them really valuable information about, you know, their anaerobic power. From Nick Carter, uh, can you confirm what your recovery protocol is following our game day? When you talk about recovery, the greatest uh, the greatest power that we have in recovery is time. So every single thing we do has a certain amount of time that it takes to recover. So if we're working, you know, an explosive event that a player has been conditioned to in, in the past and we're doing it to a maximal level, we may expect that that can be recovered in, you know, about 48 hours. If we're playing 11 v 11 on a Tuesday and we're working lots of different systems and we're pushing them beyond uh, the intensity of what a match would be, I would be very careful putting a player into a performance or making them do something maximally within three days. So we understand every drill um, that time is the ultimate recovery. But what we can do um, is make sure that we minimise that time by, by maximising a couple of different parts of recovery. Um, so the first part is making a player feel good. Because the percentages of all types of recovery, um, whether it's um, ice bars, massage, compression garments, contrast bathing, are very small. I've actually jumped a step there. So the, because those recovery time, uh, those percentage recovery benefits are very small, a major impact of those things is psychology. Okay, so what we want to do is we want to provide players access to all of those things and let them choose what works for them because we know that all of those things can have different effects on psychology and if we can get the player thinking they feel better they will feel better just because of the power of the mind the other key building blocks other than time to recovery are obviously nutrition we have to get nutrition right okay the second part is we have to get sleep right and the third part is we have to get our training periodization right so you've got time nutrition sleep training programming, and then you can start to think about all of those other things. And those other things in research have some small benefits. If you stuff up those other things, you can make your recovery period much longer than it needs to be. And if you use those additional, if you've got all those building blocks right, the big rocks, and you put those small box blocks in, you may get a better performance out of a player in a shorter time frame because you've made them feel better about themselves.
Okay. Um, from Shane, Andrew, what are the standardised physical tests that you run? Is it yo-yo or others? Yeah, so um, with that standardised test battery, um, we have basic range of motion tests that we do with our medical team. Um, we have basic muscle strength tests that we do with our, our, um, our medical team and our, our strength and conditioning team. And then when we move on to the physiological battery of tests, we do a counter-movement jump, we do a standing broad jump, we do height, weight, skin folds. When we're in camp and it's very short, we try to get a sub-max yo-yo, so we're looking at some recovery. We're looking at heart rate at a sub-maximal sub value and some recovery kinetics. If we can get a maximal um, aerobic anaerobic test, like a yo-yo test, which we use, yo-yo IR2 for the senior national teams, we would like to do it. We would also like, love, because of the time constraints of the national team setting, to get this battery out into the landscape. And this battery will then give us an idea of um, players, like I said, as they're developing, benchmarking players against national team players against A-league players. So someone in the community can do this testing and understand where they sit compared to, you know, Matthew Leckie, who plays for the national team. They're simple tests that can be done with Trevor Morgan in the under-17s in Bangladesh, you know, through to us playing a World Cup in Qatar. Um, so, yeah, they're not complex tests because we, we need it to be standardised across all teams, all environments. Okay, thanks, mate. Thanks to everyone for those questions. When we, I'll get Andrew to go back to his presentation. When we come back, I've got questions here from Shane uh, and Beck. I'll, I'll get through this part and then we'll just go into questions at the end. Yeah. Okay, so now I wanted to move out of national teams and, and move into um, the, you know, a football landscape that probably is more applicable to everyone that's listening tonight. Um, and the first thing I think uh, that you need to consider when you're talking about the integration of sports science into the coaching um, profession, whether it's either through your own means or through the support of staff around you, is that you need to have a clear understanding of how you want to play the game. And the reason I say this is when you understand how you want to play the game, then we can start to analyse what are the physical requirements to play that game. And like I said, the physical requirements of playing certain positions within a game are different, okay? And when, you, uh, when your staff understands that, you know, the way you want to play a game and just a simple example is, you know, you want to play your wingers high and inside, but you want them to defend in a 4-4-2. We start to understand what sort of physical requirements over the journey when we start to analyse games are going to be required to play that position. And this is the benefit of, of having staff that work with you over a long period of time is that while your game might evolve, the basic principles of how you play the game uh, become very well known within your staff and you can start to add information of the sort of players that are going to be suited to playing your style of game. And we were talking about Broski before. Um, and at the time in Sydney, we were playing a game, and this is in the very early days, it's just an example that pops to mind, um, where we were playing, you know, a 4-2-2-2 with two tens, two nines. We knew that Broski didn't have the aerobic legs to be able to defend um, in, a, in a midfield four. So we actually identified that Philip Olosko had aerobic engines and he used to have an amazing output in the game and we used to tank him every single game. 
that this guy would play as a number nine on the front line and then have the ability to be helping out the fullback at right at right fullback or in two banks at four. So I think if you have an understanding of how you want to play the game and, and that can evolve, it will help um, educate the staff around you of the sort of information that they need to find to complement how you want to play the game, to give you the information of the players that can play your sort of game. So like I said, when we understand that, we can start to understand the player demands of the way you want to play the game. This also, when we understand this, then we can understand the injury risk that players are faced if they need to, if, if they're required to play your game. You know, if we play a system where we have, um, you know, back four where we require a lot of our fullbacks, so we require our fullbacks to go right over the top of our midfield and our front line and get back to, to defend in, in a back four. If we're moving a centre-half that has never demonstrated that they're capable of doing the sort of numbers that are required to play in your game at right fullback, my advice to you would be you need to change your style of game if, you want to, if that's the only option to play that player in this game. So I think this is um, a situation where um, you intuit intuitively already know that, but I've given you the objective evidence to actually go forward with that gut feeling. Um, that we need to change our game in this situation because the time-motion characteristics of that style of game will not suit that player and they're not capable of doing it. This was a small study that was done um, recently in the Norwegian First Division and, you know, this is where I think that um, going right back to the start of the presentation where we talk about sports science being, um, you know, objectively backed, evidence-backed, knowledge that we can put into what in a big part is a subjective game. And I think that a small study like this that was done on first division players in Norway, um, I think we were looking at um, the time motion analysis over about 15 games and 110 matches, uh, player matches. Um, so it's a decent amount to, to look at. Your, your thoughts may be that a wing back in a, uh, you know, in, in, in a wing-back system versus a back four might do um, more or you may do more in a, in a back three than in a back four. But what this shows us is that overall in a game, it doesn't really matter what system we play, the overall load, um, time-motion load of the players in the match is not significantly different. The difference comes with what I was talking about before and that's when we start to look at individual position characteristics. And then when we start to move a player around the field, we need to understand in the style of play that we're playing, is this player capable of moving from this position to this position, given what we know we ask of that player? So you can see the big difference there with the red circles. You can see in the top graph on the left, um, you know, this is, and this is just one number that I picked. This is the high-speed running statistics of, you know, in the back four or the back five, the fullback, wide midfielder um, and the wing back. And then here we're looking at the centre halves playing in the same match. If I ask Thomas Deng to go from uh, playing as a centre half week in, week out to right fullback, my information to the coaches are that at some point in this game, if we're asking him to do exactly what we normally do in this position, he's going to clap out. And so we need to be ready for that decision. So that's a little bit of information that sports science can give to make sure that we're prepared for situations. 
We can also also see that there's a massive difference in the in the sprint distance of these players. So sprint distance, we're looking at you know top speeds like speeds above 26 k's an hour. Um, you know we can also see that there's big differences between anyone playing in wide positions to central positions um, in accelerating and decelerating. Um, at your club, I think, like I said, in the national teams, there doesn't need to really be any difference to what we do with the national teams. I think it's really important that you build a physiological profile of your players. Um, we've spoken a lot about this early in the presentation, but I think that to have some measure of the pro progress of this player whilst this player is with you, and I understand that we need to inspire the players to give maximal tests, I don't find this being a difficult thing. I think. Players want to know this information and they want to know this information if they know it's not going to be used against them. And I think that's the same for any information. We need to be sure that whatever information we collect, whether it's testing or monitoring, that that information is going to be used to make you a better player, not going to be used to select or deselect you. Like I said, the importance of this um, thinking of creating a basic physiological profile is my piece in the puzzle as a sports scientist to try to assess growth and development, to benchmark players against other players of other levels and international players, to identify the strengths and weaknesses of a player and make sure that we can, you know, work on improving some of those weaknesses or, you know, really improve some of their strengths and to get a bit of an understanding of their suitability to your style. The second tip I have for anyone who um, is thinking about implementing sports science into the coaching process is understand during a season what the worst case scenario is for your players. And I've pulled a couple of examples here just from some history things that I had. And this is a really important role um, of the sports scientist. It's important for them to look forward at the season and understand what is the most dangerous, taxing, difficult period that we're going to face in this year. And if we understand that, can we prepare for that period so that it's not a massive jump for players, so that we deal with it without having a massive increase in injuries, and it just actually seems quite normal. And like I said before, developing a normality for the player will make us cruise through these periods. Um, there's some things that you can't control, but I believe that there's a hell of a lot more that you can control than, than you can't, and I think sometimes we err on the Oh, I couldn't help that, but I always find in my own self-analysis that there was always a reason why something happened. You know, a, a, a contact injury in most cases happens because of a dumb decision or because of fatigue. You put yourself in the wrong position. And there's always somewhere, if you dig deep enough, that you can find to learn from to say, maybe we contributed to putting this player in this position. Um, I'm not sure what year it was. For Sydney FC, we had a match every 5.2 days for 73 days with small squads, with crazy amounts of travel, 40-plus training sessions mixed in, um, with an average of 485 minutes for players every 28 days. We obviously shared some of those minutes with players, but to play in top competitions, you need your best players. And so we couldn't change it that much. Um, the way that we prepared for a period like that was building up the training load 
for approximately three months before so that we were playing a game midweek, so that we were doing the equivalent load of playing a match every 5.2 days. The next part um, is building a monitoring model. And this was this this kind of moves on from the question that we had before about, you know, we have access to technology, to money, to facilities at the elite level, and, and what can we do at a lower level to make sure that we have an evidence-based um, sports science backing to our programs. Um, it's easy for me to talk about the physical load of training sessions because it's easy to measure. We look at the tactical complexity of our training sessions to see if players are getting tired because we're constantly drilling them with tactical information um, and that we just need to back off. And we can plan that in the training program. But if we look at the, the gas theory on the left that has been around for a long time, in each one of those areas, if we just walk our way through it, you know, we, we live at a normal level. We expose, expose a player to either training or a match in a certain physiological area. We then hope that the player recover, we give the player enough time so that they recover above their baseline, which is their normal level. And in that phase three, either D or at most E, we're thinking of re-exposing the player to whatever we're trying to train so that our new normal value is higher. And this happens in small steps. There's no perfect science. And the reason there's no perfect science is because we're dealing with players of all different ages, of all different training histories, of all different mechanics, players where their performance is made up of different parts, percentage parts of technical ability, tactical ability, physical ability. So it takes a bit of art to be able to achieve this successfully. Um, but I think combined with that art, we need to push as much objective information into it as we can. We need to understand how the players are coping with the doses that we're giving them and recovering from those doses for the next performance, whether it's training or a match. We want to gather an understanding of how taxing that training session, and that training session could be a training week, but let's drill this down to one session. We want to understand through our planning and the session that was done what the external load of that training session was. So the external load is we measure how far they run. We measure how many accelerations they run, decelerations, change of directions. However, we want to measure their time motion characteristics in a game. That gives us an idea of the external load. But that's not good enough by itself because you can imagine if you've got a player that's 20 years old versus a player that's 38 years old that's exposed to the same external load, their internal response, which is how hard or how they perceive the session to be, or their heart rate response, will be significantly different. So we need to balance up those two things to understand the load that we've exposed a player to. We need to understand an external load, which can be GPS monitoring, which can be, you know, the amount of minutes or the sort of drills that we did. So we're looking at, okay, in a behind type model, we're looking at, we know that this sort of amount of actions contain, are contained in this amount of time. The external load we're going to put on a player is five times eight minutes today. We want to see how the player responded to that. So we can look at that in different ways. We can just ask a player, how hard did you think that was, which is RPE. We can look at heart rate to have a, have a look at another internal re load response. When I expose the player to that training session, what percentage of their maximum did they work at in that drill? Because that has a really different chemical response in the body. The next part when we move around to the yellow wellness monitoring is starting to understand the subjective response to that training, um, to that training process. 
So when we're looking at wellness, we're looking at how players are coping with the training session or the match that we're throwing at them. And when we look at wellness, we're trying to assess whether a player is recovering from the training session to be ready to train again and move around to that D, which is the readiness to train or play again. In national teams, and I think um, across the board, when you're looking at wellness, we need to look at wellness in three distinct areas. And those three distinct areas are, and, and some of these, again, can be intuitive. We watch players when they walk into the training session or they walk in in the morning if we're in, in a professional environment. We know that the players are tired. We can see the fatigue on their face. We can see the mood that they're in. We can see the, um, you know, the, the stress that they might be under. So when we're doing wellness monitoring, we're looking at those three areas. We're looking at what is the mood of the player? How stressed are they and what's the cause of that stress? And how fatigued are they today? We do some tricky statistical methods to look at that. We look at, is there a change from day to day? So are they going in a negative direction? And is that what we expected because that's the training session that we exposed them to? Is there a continual trend downwards? So is there a continual trend downward in stress that we need to investigate a little bit further to say, what's making you stressed? You know, is it family, financial? Can we help this player? Because it's going to affect the rest of their game and their performance. And we're just talking about performance. That's it. Um, the final area is fatigue. And fatigue can come from different areas. But if we trust our players, we trust that when they tell us that they're tired, that they are tired. And we need to respect that. Once we've gone through that process and identified that our training has been good, our planning has been good, we've monitored their recovery, they're all available to train or to play, they're ready to train, we go back on the same process again. So I think at any level, this process can be followed on a daily basis or a monthly basis to make sure that there's good sports science in, in your practice as a coach. You can see that I've described the model as well where you have no equipment. So in my environment, you can go as far as having GPS monitors, heart rate monitors, heart rate variability, biochemical markers. Um, um, you know, we can do different types of statistical analysis of wellness monitoring. We can do functional testing of um, jump tests or groin squeezes or, you know, stuff like that to discover whether a player has recovered. But in the simplest environment, you can carry out this same process. So just a quick summary of that. The monitoring model should aim to provide a balanced picture of combining internal and external measures, and I hope you have a pretty simple understanding of what those internal and external measures are of the training, of the tra of training and the match, um, and the accumulative effect of those over a period of time as well. What is normal for that player over four weeks, over six weeks, over one week, so we can understand what they're capable of coping with. And just on that point, I think that players are capable of a hell of a lot more than we think they are, both in a long-term um, setting, but also in a training spike. I don't think that we should be scared of the training spike. I think we should be scared of not respecting the recovery that's needed from the spike. So some days we, we recognise the players are fresh and we want to push them twice as hard, and I have no problem with it. Go for it on the right day. But then we need to recognise, okay, they need to recover now because if we go like normal tomorrow, we're going to run into trouble. 
Uh, the monitoring model should combine subjective, objective, and functional measures of training, response, and recovery. So we should combine measures of wellness, subjective, objective measures. Can a player do a groin squeeze or can they jump? Or when we put them through hurdles, do they look like they're lagging a long time on the ground? Um, sorry, I've mixed up. I've, I've described the functional measures, not the objective measures. Um, but can they perform those functional measures to show that they've recovered from the training? The monitoring model must guide the training process to optimise the player health, player health and performance. I think that's self-explanatory. My last couple of bits on the presentation are about creating trust, and I think that creating trust um, in a team environment across staff and from between staff and players is fundamental to the success of, of any team. I think that with trust, um, we get honest responses. We get players that are willing to share things because they know that it won't be used against them that possibly you can use to improve you, their individual performance, but as well improve the performance of the team. I think that we need to be patient and understand that trust is not built quickly and we need to allow a period of time under the pressure that we're at at coaches and you know how quickly we get sacked these days to create a trusting environment where a player can share their problems with you or you know share their goals and dreams with you so that whilst it should never overtake the objectives of the team, the team should always come first that we respect when a player is struggling. We respect that a player has things that they want to achieve in their career and they trust that conversation or that information giving that they, they pass on that it won't be used against them, against them and that it will be used to improve their performance. I think that when a player um, puts their personal goals, and, th and this is outside of the realm of sports science, but as soon as a player starts to put their personal goals beyond the team's goals, I think the longevity of that player in the environment is short in my experience. So we need to make sure players have trust in your philosophy. They have trust in your training model. I think, um, you know, if you get training wrong and you get it wrong um, not many more times than once that affects a player's performance, you will have a big battle on your hands to get the trust of the players back giving you maximal in a training session. They need to have trust that your monitoring model is used to make them a better player and to make the team a better team. They need to have trust to come forward that when they need support that you will give it to them um, and that in giving that support they will give you, you know, maximal in return. Um, we need to be consistent in our beliefs. I think that consistency is very different to creating monotony and boredom, but I think if we believe in something, um, that we should have the strength to be consistent in our beliefs um, and go forward with them over the long period of time. But that's not to say that we don't need to be agile and ready to change quickly to a changing environment. I think, you know, agility that overlays being consistent and having core beliefs is the key to really successful managers. You know, they recognise a situation that we need to do something different but it doesn't deviate so far from their core beliefs on whether it's, you know, monitoring or style of play or training exposure or any of the things that we've discussed before, but the ability to, to go with that um, change that's required at that moment while still, while still maintaining your core beliefs, um, you know, it, it crosses over into that trust of the players and in their trust that 
you know, you know where you want to go and where you want to take them. Never forget what it felt like to be a player. I always try to remember this. And in, in trying to remember this, I, I think, what does it feel like to be player number 12 to number 20? I think if we look at this graph here, if we reject the people that are outside of our starting 11, because they're the happiest people in our teams, they're easy to train, they're, they're easy to keep happy, they're easy to deal with, you know, for the most part, they're exactly where they want to be. But at some point during our seasons or tournaments, we need players 12 to 20. And if we don't respect those players and we don't support those players, that at the time when we need them, they're going to let us down. Now, in my business, supporting those players meaning, means that most of my energy and training is directed towards those players. The hardest session that I design every single week when I'm in a club is the match day plus one session. I spend all of my energy trying to make that session as enjoyable as possible, almost to the point where the boys that played in the first set, uh, 11, are pissed off that they didn't get to do that session. And I think if you can combine that philosophy where they're enjoying football, they're conditioning, and they're ready to play, um, you know, that those players will always be there for you. So I think it's really important to respect, the message I wanted to get out of this was to respect player 12 to 20 even more, and I'm talking more to support staff here than the manager, but even more than the players 1 to 11. I think 1, one to 11, there is a big focus on the tactical outcomes of those players by the manager. But support staff, sports signer, strength and conditioning, coach, assistant coach, we need to devote a lot of our energy to those players because we're going to need them. The last thing I wanted to quickly go over is never ignore your intuition. I think as a coach, um, someone who comes in, um, you know, talking shit, as a doesn't matter whether you're a sports scientist or a psychologist, um, saying that your intuition is incorrect without any objective evidence to, to back that, um, I don't think that you should have those people around you. I think you should listen to your intuition, but I think you should seek the people around you and seek evidence base to back your intuition or question it. If it backs your intuition, you're right, move forward. If it doesn't back your intuition because of the weight of evidence and good evidence, because there's a lot of rubbish evidence out there, then you need to question some of your core principles and, and your core philosophies and, and really assess whether they are, you know, your intu intuition is correct and whether you need to change your model. Here's a couple of simple things just to, um, uh, from evidence that, that back up that intuition. We all know that if we have a fit team, we're more likely to be successful in football. It means our best players are playing. It means our players are playing consistently together. It means that we can advance our tactical plan in a game week on game on game week on week with a consistent team of best players. This sort of research has been done over and over from the A-League to Qatari to the Premier League where play, uh, teams that have consistent starting teams and have low injury rates are more successful than teams that don't. We also understand that, and this is a UEFA study, that if we don't understand what's normal for a player um, and we make big jumps, that we expose players to increased risk. So in the UEFA Champions League study that's gone on for a while, we can see that injury risk, both um, traumatic um, and overuse injuries, is highest at the start of pre-season. 
So we need to respect that and respect how we start pre-season and how we build a normalised load for a player. We can also see that in the early months of the season where players are making a big jump um, in their normalised loads, so they've probably come in very short. Um, they've got to August, September, October in a European season where the games are starting to stack up. The injuries start to spike because it's not normal for them. So can we prepare for those situations before? Because when we get into a normal part of the season where load becomes normal, they're playing you know, 500 minutes a month, injury statistics drop. This is a fairly standard description of the sort of injuries that happen in football and it's replicated across leagues all around the world and this is again from the UEFA study. What if I told you that I have the evidence to reduce these numbers by approximately 50%? I'm sure that every single one of you would take me on that. If, if I implement evidence-based programs that reduce hamstring injuries, Research shows, and I'll show you in a couple, that people who have had a history of hamstring injury and people who have had no history of hamstring injury over multiple studies will reduce incidence by 50%. The people that have never had an injury before, their hamstring injury will be reduced by 80% by implementing an evidence-based uh, practice program. The same can be applied across all different areas of the body. If we apply that evidence-based model to preparing players for performance, we can reduce hip and groin injuries. We can reduce thigh injuries. There's some impact injuries that we're never going to reduce, um, but maybe we're putting them in a position where, you know, they're psychologically in a better position to avoid getting into trouble. And this is the final slide, and this is some evidence just to show what I said before. This is across 14 studies using the most basic exercise, and there's a, there's a number of different factors that add towards, and I'm just talking specifically about hamstring injuries here, People who consistently completed just this one simple exercise reduced hamstring injury rates by 50%. And like I said, this can be replicated across all different areas of injuries in the body. And we don't need to set it up so that it interferes with training sessions. We can reduce injuries in our teams and keep our best teams on the park by having good people around us that are making sure these programs are being done. Because when they're not done, hamstring injury rates say normal and you're going to get seven to ten hamstring injuries per season for your team next year if you don't have a program like this in place and I'm not specifically saying this particular exercise this is just a fantastic example of a consistent program that will make massive changes to your team's health and that's everything for me. So the first question Andrew to you um, is from go with Gary Cole so Gary would you if you could come off mic uh, just to ask your question please. Probs, thanks, Clarky. That was uh, terrific, mate. Um, understand and uh, well, <laughs> much better understand the science now. J just wondering, with all of that, obviously, there's as you said, there's there's plenty of money around. There's plenty of investment in sports science. Mm. How often do you think the coaches, in spite of all that, still ignore it, ignore the advice, and go with their gut feel? And if so, are there, are there particular circumstances about giving players more time or more time out in the training pitch? Is that stuff happening or, or does Arnie just say, how high do you want me to jump, Clarky? Um, I think it, the, the responsibility really needs to um, start with the strength and conditioning coaches and the sports scientists. 
I think that if if I give you a plausible argument um, to either doing, and, and it's not about doing less training, often my argument with Arnie will be we need to do more training. Um, but if I give you a, an argument that has some evidence behind it um, to, to either support or challenge his thinking, I think that we will be in a lot stronger position in the game and I think it's, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll have robust debate about why you're making that decision but I think the sports scientist has a responsibility to use evidence to sell to the coach why these changes should be made or no changes or just to actually go to the coach and say, do you know what, what we've done this week is fantastic. You know, we are spot on prepared. And imagine what sort of peace of mind that gives you as a manager going into the game the next day when you go home after the last training session with some small pieces of information that say, we've nailed it this week. Come on, let's go and win the game. Question from Beck. How important is a player's max speed uh, when selecting for national teams? I think certain positions... um, in our game require, you know, are more more dangerous because of top speed. Um, when we look at top leagues around the world, there's no denying that to be very, very elite in the top leagues in the world, um, the sort of athletes that are attracted, especially to certain positions, you know, whether it's defenders or frontline players, less so the central players, um, are uh, ridiculously quick. So I think top speed will never completely make our decision and no measure will ever make our decision. It's a combination of a number of different factors, but there's no denying that athletic ability at some point in the match is going to decide when two people make exactly the same decision and they're in a foot race that's 20 metres to get to a ball or 10 metres to get to a ball, that the guy who has the physical capacity to run at 36 k's an hour with a smart brain, with the technical ability, will win the race. Okay. Um, and we have a question from Ron Smith on text. Uh, have you ever considered keeping some players on their time zones, i.e. from the UK, for instance, and others from Australia, so you can train as a whole group to avoid jet lag as much as possible when they go home? I think we, re- we respect um, the time zones that the players have come from and we certainly um, try to accommodate our training sessions um, to make sure that you know some of the if, if we have a few players that we're asking to do a training session at completely the wrong time of day for circadian rhythm we won't be rigid in saying that we need to train at 10 a.m today we'll move that training session to accommodate those players the the tricky part is that we can't manipulate the match time we, we cannot manipulate the kickoff time and so we need to manipulate our players to a small degree to make sure that we take them out of those lows so that they're capable of performing at their best. Um, and I had an interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago before all of this situation blew up with Qantas um, and we were talking about similarities of our athletes preparing to play games in different parts of the world versus pilots that are required to be at maximal alertness um, to land a plane or to take a plane, uh, to, to, uh, to take off in a plane. And the issues were very, very similar. It's, it's a balancing act of maintaining um, the same time zone because we know that they're going back to that time zone 
and making small manipulations and allowing players to rest when they're in down periods to make sure that they can perform at their best. And I think that if we always focus on the performance first and every decision we make originates in how do we get the ultimate performance, then we're on the right track. Thanks, Andrew. Question from Radu. Uh, it's a testing and outcomes question. Is it possible to see or access the results of players as per age groups? Average results of different age groups specific for football competitive environment available for school PE. Uh, does have does the FFA have those with sporty football kids? Well, because it's been a long time since there's been any sort of standardised testing battery, there's not a lot of information on this stuff. Um, part of what we're trying to do is, um, in being leading in this area, is test our national team players and then make that information freely available to everyone in the landscape. And then from there, we hope to encourage uh, other teams, you know, be they semi-professional, amateur, to measure themselves, um, to, to benchmark themselves against the elite players in Australia. If we can then move that on to a more formalised situation where, you know, we have a large-scale study where we have universities involved in, in testing batteries being conducted around the country, you know, then we can start to look at a population study where we can compare ourselves development-wise and to similar studies that have been done in different areas in the world. So I think it's a big project for us. Um, we're already producing graphs on national teams um, that we, Fabian, who's an outstanding sports scientist I work with, is actually presenting that to someone tomorrow night, I think, as well. Um, but we would like that to happen, definitely. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Belinda Wilson, are you able to come off mute and ask your question, please? And welcome, Belinda. Thanks, Glenn. How are you? Hey, Andrew. Um, my question is just about being that the international game now is being played at high thresholds and they're covering and players are covering more distances in those thresholds. Mm. Um, and now as a national team coach, how do you actually prepare your players who are playing in leagues that are playing at less speeds, less distances, so that they're ready to perform at either qualifiers or final tournaments? What's the relationship between the club and the player? Look, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'd love to get Trev in. Trev, if you could open up your um, speaker in this situation as well, Trev Morgan. Trevor and me have this conversation. Um, it's, a, it's a very delicate balancing act of um, overstepping your mark as being part of the national teams with clubs where we're saying to players, uh, to clubs that, you know, your players aren't doing enough at an under 17 level to be able to compete at a World Cup level. Um, and, and that's no different, I know, with the girls as well. We, we think that, or I personally think, and I'll let Trev finish off here, that we need to demonstrate objectively um, where we're struggling and we need to highlight that to the clubs um, and support them in the process of lifting um, the training intensity and the match intensity um, of those players in their environments. Um, it's, it's not a, you know, the, the, the easiest way to do would be to pull them out of these clubs' environments and just smash them at the levels that we want to smash them at in camps. But like I said at the start, we don't own these players. The clubs own the players. They're in academies that are developing these players. And so we need to work with the clubs to try to, demonstrate to them the sort of intensities that they need to train at and play at to compete on the world stage. Yep. Yep. 
There's not okay. a lot to add to that, Clarky. Um, I guess just a couple of things. I recently visited um, – uh, I was in the UK doing some scouting um, and I spent a few days at Southampton where we have a couple of players um, and they looked after me in an unbelievable way and I said, why are you guys being, you know, so so uh, accommodating? They said because of the level of um, care and reporting and communication that's come between your national teams and, and our club uh, in, in looking after our players is, is, if not the best in the world, it's, it's, it's certainly amongst the best in the world. So I think firstly what Andrew's done to... Um, uh, and, you know, to make sure our reporting um, through medical and through support science is at the highest level, builds that trust. Um, from the other side of it, at World Cup level, um, players that we were playing against were returning to um, first team training with PSG or other League One teams. Um, and I, I think it's very, very hard for us in a short period of time to replicate that level of training. Our lead into the World Cup was. Um, we knew what levels are at by, by a two-week camp in Chile and we knew that after that at the World Cup it was going to be recovery in between. So um, uh, definitely the, this is obviously an ongoing issue with Australian football is the number of high-level games that these young players play, um, how many back-to-back games they play to build up that uh, resilience and that uh, ability to perform at top level. Yeah, I think communication with the clubs is the starting place. Um, I think we have access to the information of top teams, but we need to respect as well. Um, and this is part of a conversation that I've had with Trev that, you know, different ethnic groups around the world grow at different rates and we have to be very careful about our judgment of players at certain age group levels. Um, but when we start to move towards senior levels, you know, we, we should be able to benchmark our training and matches, you know, given our environmental issues against what's required on the international level to gain an understanding of whether a player is good enough or at a level, a physical level, to be able to compete. Yeah. Uh, Clarky, our sports science staff did an amazing job with Caleb Watts, who came off um, some injuries and, and eventually was able to play back-to-back 90 minutes for us at a World Cup. Um, he was popping out, you know, uh, 12 kilometres against France um, and a lot of high-speed running, and that was basically just um, just monitoring his uh, his workload and, and making sure that he was able to perform every every three or four days. And that was very very difficult off the back of injuries. Now the best player for France uh, did 12 and a half kilometres against us that night, and then a week later he's back with the first team. So um, certainly uh, when we have the national team environment. Um, I think with the physios and the medical staff and the sports science staff working together, the players are very well looked after there. But there's no there's no getting around what level they come in. Um, you, you can't really make them a lot better in, in an international window. Um, got one more question from uh, Ron Smith. Ron, if you could come off mute, please. Andrew, you mentioned earlier about profiling, uh, and I'm really glad that that's come back into vogue. Um, have you ever found that by profiling players, you've identified people who have got the capacity to play in different positions than the ones that they're in? You gave the example of a centre-back, um, Deng, who might struggle after, say, 60 minutes playing as a fullback. But what if you had someone like Deng who had the profile of a Brett Emerton who could play anywhere on the park and meet any physical demands that were placed upon him you know have you found that it's kind of like um giving you opportunities to use people in different ways um, yeah look, a prime example of that <clears throat> i've always testing has always been a part of my model it, it measures the success of our programs it measures the progress of players 
Um, when we first came to Sydney, um, you know, we had Ryan Grant is a perfect example. Um, he wasn't in amazing shape, but he had, you could tell he had capacity, you know, to run yeah. aerobically. He was playing in central positions a lot of the time. Um, and he was known as like this guy that just dogged around central positions. He played left back. He was the utility. And very quickly we identified through his profile that this guy can just perform repeated actions even when he's not fit, you know, endlessly. Yes. Um, and, and very early on with that sort of information and plus no decision is made without the balance of, you know, what they're tactically and technically capable of doing. But Arnie very quickly pulled Rhino aside and said, you will play right back for us and I don't want you to play anywhere else. Because in our structure, you know, we, we ask a lot of our fullbacks, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what we play further up the field unless, you know, we're leveling things off on one side because we've got more of a winger. We usually ask a hell of a lot from our fullbacks and we knew straight away that Ryan Grant could do it. And the rest is history for him. Very quickly he marched from, you know, being locked in as a right fullback instead of being a six, an eight, this or that to being considered, you know, one of the better players in the A-League, to being a national team player, to Josh Risden getting injured in the first game of the Asia Cup, to never looking like losing his position ever since. Uh, Andrew, thank, on behalf of uh, Football Coaches Australia, and you've been a member since the start, an executive member, thank you very much for tonight's presentation and the continued support that you um, continue to provide Football Coaches Australia. Uh, and also tonight, a special thanks to uh, our executive member, Sarah West, who's pulled all this together behind the scenes. Uh, and we'll sign off now and see you all again next time. Thank you.